Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Family Renewal Podcast. I'm Israel Wayne. And I'm Brooke. We want to talk today about the topic of reading. Reading is, of course, something that is one of the most essential aspects of your child's education. And when you're teaching your young children, the two things that I think are the most important for them to learn at an early age are reading and also mathematics. In fact, um, those are really the only two subjects that you really need a formal curriculum for. Um, Going to be a little controversial there, just throw that out. I am not against you using lots of formal curriculum to teach your children all the other subjects, as they can be wonderful tools, but for the most part, mathematics and reading uh, really does help if you have some kind of a formal workbook, textbook type of approach uh, the other subjects uh, you actually can teach through other methods and sometimes even more effectively than through traditional textbooks. So just something for you to think about there. Um, we, we actually use formal textbooks probably on most subjects. but So I like to think about what's sort of irreducibly complex, like what is the bare basics that you actually need and uh, the foundations of reading and Mathematics are a good starting point for children. Now, this leads us to the question of how old should a child be when he or she starts to learn how to read? And that's a very controversial topic, and it kind of leads us to a guy who was a friend of both of ours, Brooke, back in the day, um, the guy who's probably considered to be the grandfather of the modern-day homeschooling movement, Dr. Raymond Moore. And uh, I knew the Moores, Raymond and Dorothy Moore. Uh, Your family knew them better. Um, Your family became close personal friends of the Moores. But your mom started homeschooling with Dr. Moore um, back in 1983 when she heard him on Focus on the Family. Right. And a lot of people don't know that it was actually the topic of reading that started the modern-day Christian homeschooling movement. It was the research of Dr. Moore uh, that sparked this whole resurgence now to where we have two and a half million students being homeschooled in the United States alone. And it really was a result of um, a lot of parents who had sent their children off to government school at kindergarten and uh, had expected them to be reading at age five and to be on par with what was expected of them academically. And there were a lot of boys in particular who did not learn to read at grade level. And these boys parents were frustrated, and sometimes the boys were frustrated because uh, they were saying these boys are learning disabled, they have all kinds of educational deficiencies, and they're not going to be able to be in a regular class. And so these parents began to worry about their five-year-olds and wonder if they'd ruined them for life, if they were going to be able to graduate from college and be employed as adults, and all those things that parents tend to over-obsess about. Uh, But Dr. Raymond Moore had written a couple of books, and uh, he had done some research on early childhood development. One of his books was called Better Late Than Early, and also another one called School Can Wait. And uh, these books 
drew, drew from his research on child development that suggested that boys develop later on lingu- linguistic skills and they develop earlier in math and science. And girls tend to be inverse to that. Girls are often ready to read at the age of five and they struggle sometimes with math and science early on. Um, boys sometimes uh, do best with the language skills and the reading skills between the ages of seven to nine. And they're just not ready for the formal uh, training or formal academics yet. So in 1983, when Dr. Raymond Moore was on Focus on the Family, Dr. James Dobson asked him, so what do you suggest for parents who find themselves in the situation where they have a boy who is not reading on grade level? He's just not ready to do this. What do you suggest they do? And Dr. Moore said, I would suggest that they keep them home and just teach them at home and then maybe put them back in school later. Well, from what I can tell from my research, it seems like about 5,000 homeschooling families, well, they weren't homeschooling, but they, they took their kids out and they started homeschooling them uh, all at once. Uh, and they didn't know that anybody else was doing it. They didn't know that, um, they thought they were alone in the whole country. They were the only ones who were doing this. Um, but they started teaching their children at home. And of course, that ended up creating problems because of compulsory attendance laws and Before you knew it, um, HSLDA was starting in 1983 to help defend these families against charges of truancy and educational neglect, and state homeschool organizations started, and before you knew it, the whole homeschooling movement, as we now know it, had begun. But initially, it was a reading problem that uh, originated with boys, and I don't think that initially Dr. Moore was suggesting that parents should just choose homeschooling as a lifestyle. His thought was delay it, and they can go to school later. But God sovereignly used that research from Dr. Moore, the broadcast with focus on the family, and that suggestion that people should keep their boys home and delay their formal academics to start them on this experiment. And once these parents kept their children home, they soon realized they had close relationships with their children that they didn't have or wouldn't have had otherwise, and they just thought, we're not going to send any of our children back, boys or girls. We're just going to homeschool. And they did. And so uh, here we are now with homeschooling being a massive uh, growing movement all around the world. Uh, But this issue of reading is a struggle. And this issue, particularly with boys um, not being ready to read, is a difficulty. And I have my own story and experience, uh, even being homeschooled myself, uh, my own struggles with reading that I'll share in a little bit. But, um, Brooke, what what do you think is a good time to start introducing your children to reading? Do you think that the best idea is to delay reading for all children, for boys? Would you suggest that you don't even start until they're seven or nine, or what do you suggest? I find that it varies from child to child when they are ready. And like Israel mentioned, boys tend to be a little bit later than girls. Not always, but generally. I usually try around the age of four to start giving out a little bit of information for my children and um, kind of see how they'll take it. My mom worked extensively with uh, the aspects of learning how and teaching to uh, children to read. She didn't teach a whole lot of children to read, but she... Um, worked with a lot of homeschooling parents, giving some counseling and tutoring for the parents in order to be able to teach their children. And one of the things that she always counseled parents on 
is if you have, uh, it's almost hard to say reluctant learner because we're talking about four-year-olds after all, or five-year-olds, um, they're, they're so little yet. She said, just take a child um, and sit down for a couple minutes. And she said, if they're four, that should be about four minutes. If they're five, that's five minutes. If they're six, that's six minutes. Unless the child themselves want to go forward and keep learning. But if they're kind of not real interested, keep it at whatever minutes relates to their age. And um, that is super helpful when it comes to little youngsters because they're having a hard time keeping their little bodies still, especially boys. They've got to hop up and jump around and race around and go find that car that they remember is stuck under the couch and all these things. And so keeping it very short helps that child's attention span. What needs to happen in learning with reading is the phonics first, the sounds. We have this uh, wonderful phonetic language, which means all of our words can be written out as symbols for a sound. And so when this whole sight word um, type of learning has come into our country, it's flipped things around so much and made our language, which is phonetic, basically into a hieroglyphic type of language where you view a picture and insert your brain or memory of this is what that word is. And so with teaching phonics, you're starting with just pure basic sounds associated with that letter. So A and say three sounds. It says a, a, a. And so when I go through with the phonics with my little children at four, I um, do it in such a way that I'm always teaching them how to say it. I say it first, and then I tell them how to say it or have them say it. And I flip through flashcards in such a way when they're four. And if after a couple of days, they're not even having any memory of it, or it's just producing too much tension, I'll back off for a couple months even and come back at it. Usually by the time a child is five, five and a half, they can grasp the whole um, alphabet and all of its sounds, and that's a good time to start reading. We've really enjoyed in putting it this time, uh, learning from a book called Alpha Phonics by Samuel Blumenfeld. I wonder, Israel, if you'd want to share about that a minute. Yeah, um, Sam Blumenfeld was a educator and one of the greatest historians on modern-day education in America. He actually just died in 2016, um, was a, a fabulous person. My mom started first publishing his articles and introducing him to the homeschooling community back in the 1980s through her magazine, Homeschool Digest. Um, but if you haven't read any of Sam Blumenfeld's books, um, most of them are out of print, but you should go and do some research on that and uh, hunt down Sam Blumenfeld and read uh, some of his articles on literacy and on education. Okay, Brooke, you mentioned the term agitated young learners related to this issue of reading. What do you mean by that term? Well, I just mean that little children have so much bounce in them that it's a little hard to, you know, sometimes for parents, especially moms, to uh, feel like we're making any kind of headway in the academic world when little Johnny just can't sit still and he's twisting and turning and doing somersaults. And um, I know so many moms, this is so frustrating. They feel like they're pulling their hair out because they're trying to teach their child. They're actually trying to impart something of worth and of uh, a tool that he's going to need for the rest of his life. And this little child doesn't care in the least to receive it or even to pay attention. And so I think if I could just say this, um, 
gently, I think we need to back off as moms. I think we need to realize that maybe in, in particular our boys, but our girls sometimes too, God created them with all that bounce and all that fun and all that ADD. <laughs> and, and we need to work with it instead of against it. By that, I mean, find ways that you can incorporate some odd poses for your little child. Okay, today you're going to be sitting upside down and we're going to hold your flashcards upside down and we're going to be doing it that way. One of my favorite ways to keep energy in those little ones and keep attention is by holding up in the in the reading courses, their phonograms, holding up one phonogram. I'll say it and then I'll have my youngster say it and then I'll give some sort of activity, very short, you know, jump up and down jump up and down three times or, um, you know, we go on to the letter B and I'll say, okay, now you have to pat your head. And in the game is a bit like you have to do it fast. This is teaching so much for a child because they're having to listen for instruction and then they have to complete it in a quick way. And you know what that does for them when it's some sort of little physical release type of thing? It's like, oh, I get to jump up and down. It's not a bad thing. I'm not being constrained and, and told to sit down when I can't keep my body still. But it's it's a good thing. And they're being told to do it. So it not only helps them uh, learn better about paying attention and following the instructions I've given them. But I find when I say, okay, you know, jump up and down. And then I've got the next flashcard ready they have to really try to focus in and I'm like, okay, look at your next one. And they're looking all over because I'm holding it up high or I'm holding it down low or whatever, an unexpected place. And they have to find it. And again, this is them learning how to narrow in their vision to find the academic information I have for them. When I've gone through the phonograms twice, you know, there's only 26 letters and this has only taken a couple minutes um, maybe 10 at the most if they've really had a successful day, they're free to go and play for it a little while. And when they know this isn't going to be an all-day process, it helps them so much to know, okay, I, I can focus in and pay attention for this short time. Again, I would just say work with those little agitated learners. Uh, work with their with their energy level and don't work against them. One thing Israel and I like to share a lot with parents, especially if there's ADHD involved, is make sure that you're not simultaneously feeding your child sugars, red dyes, um, foods that have triggers in them. Caffeine. Caffeine in particular. I mean, this isn't a kindness to our poor little children to hand them a great big Mountain Dew, so to speak, and say, now shut up and be quiet because they can't. So let me ask you this. You keep using this term phonograms, and I'm going to assume that some of our listeners are probably advanced in this, and some of them know all of this terminology. Some of them have maybe never tried to teach a child to read before. They're intimidated by the entire process. They don't know anything about it, and they don't remember when they were five. They probably don't even remember what method they learned to read through. Um, when you say phonograms, are those is just the letters of the alphabet? What is a phonogram? Well, let me put my mom was greatly influenced and was taught by Romalda Spalding. And so my thoughts are all very much influenced by the Spalding writing or uh, reading road to writing. Writing her. road to reading. Uh, well, yeah, that one. <laughs> Some of, some of us are dyslexic in more than one way. <laughs> so the writing road to reading. And who was Mrs. Spalding or Ms. Spalding? You know, I don't know if I know much about her. Um, I, I believe she was an educator. 
And she developed this phonetic way of learning to read, and she utilized writing along that process. So let me start back, though, with what phonograms are. Uh, She has designated all the sounds in the United... (laughs) I was going to say United States. In the alphabet. (laughs) I think some people actually use English outside of the United States, don't they? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Unless they checked. (laughs) Anyway, she designated them into 70 sounds. I'm sorry, 70 different... Um, phonograms. There's the 26 of the alphabet, naturally. And then with each card she has on the back, the flashcard, the sounds that it will make. Again, like A would say three sounds. B only says one. C says K or S. So it says two sounds. And those sounds are taught to a child when they view the flashcard that they see it and then say it. They see the letter, and then they say its sounds. Now, I want to jump in here, because when we got married, um, you, of course, came from this background where your mom was a Spalding instructor, and uh, you had a different concept than what I had considered previously, and I was kind of fascinated with it, in that you did not teach our children the alphabet. <laughs> I have something against the alphabet names. So they, So our children did not know the alphabet, literally. Like, they're learning phonograms, they're learning the sounds that these letters make, but they don't know the names of the letters. Well... <laughs> so, let me, let me finish this. So, basically what happens is that, you know, most children learn the 26 letters of the alphabet. So, A, B, C, D, maybe they learn it to the little jingle song or whatever so that they can remember the names of all the letters. Well, our children didn't know this. So, of course, then you have, like, grandparents or people like that who come over and they want to know what your children know... And so if, they, if someone would hold up the letter A, they would say, what letter is this? Well, our children would not say A because they didn't know its name. And so they would say A-A-A-H. And people would say, well, okay, that's the sound that it makes, but what's its name? And they would just be like A-A-A-H. And it was a little bit embarrassing to me, honestly, as a dad. I'm like, my kids don't know the <laughs> alphabet. Like, we're homeschooling, and our kids don't know the alphabet. Um, now, looking back on it, um, our oldest is, what, 16 now? Looking back on it, I get it. I understand it now, and I, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great method. Um, but, but it did take me adjusting a bit. At first, I wasn't quite so sure that I agreed with that particular approach. Well, we we spend so much time teaching our children the names of the letters. Like, this is a really important thing. And frankly, we, we always teach them in capital, like to write their, we, we teach them to write their letters in capital first, when actually lowercase are used more often. But we teach the letters, sorry, the names, as if it's so important. And in reality, there's only the vowels that actually say their name. I think it's so much more important for our children to know the sounds that those letters make in order to get to reading faster. It gets a little muddled when we've put all this information into their their um, world about here's the names when the letters hardly ever say their names. And uh, so I was real big on they're going to know the sounds first. And what we've kind of done as a compromise is after a child has learned all the sounds, and of course there's chocolate involved, when a child has learned all the sounds in the entire alphabet, they get to have brownies and chocolate. But that's beside the point. Anyhow, after that, I'll go back and we'll quickly start learning the names. It takes a couple of days. I mean, it's not that not that big a deal. And I'll say A says 
A-A-A. And of course, we'll repeat it. Child says it. We move on to the letter B. B says B and so forth. And then they can have a little word handle, name handle for that sound that they've been using. I talk to them when they get confused about it and I'll say, okay, you have a dog and the dog's name is Toto. That was my dog's name when I was growing up, Toto. But Toto doesn't go around saying, Toto, Toto. Toto goes around making a sound. And I'll say, what does a dog say? And they'll, oh, you know, they're they're little at this point. They're excited. They're like, oh, yeah, this is rough, rough or whatever. They're going to, you know, however they go, bow, wow, whatever they say. I'll be like, yes. Okay, so the dog's name is what? Toto. What does the dog say? Rough, rough. Okay, so the dog doesn't go around saying his own name, right? Right. And later on, when we get to those fancy vowels where the E pokes the A to say its name and stuff, then we can bring that metaphor back and little light bulbs go on and it clicks for them. So it's oh, a lot of fun. You just use one of those phrases that you use with the kids, but I don't think people will understand what you mean by that. The E pokes the A to make it say its name. Okay. Everybody knows about a silent E. Silent E's are so much fun to teach. You have to make a game out of it when you do it, though. There's five different reasons that we have a silent E. E in the English language. And this is again where I, I've just learned so much from the Spalding method that I've incorporated it. Um, one of the reasons that we have uh, silent E at the end of a word is when um, that vowel, that E can make a vowel say its name, such as the word cake. We have a C, we have an A that says its name there. That's a vowel that says its name, the K, and then the silent E. And I make this little storyline up with our children about, we'll see this E goes around. He jumps over that K, basically, and he pokes the A so hard that it makes it say its name. But he's so exhausted in the effort, he has no sound of his own anymore. <laughs> you know, there are so many fun things that you can do. I remember when our young, our oldest children were really little, and they were trying to learn the sounds that some of these letters make. I remember getting them uh, a T-shirt and putting a letter on their chest, and they would be a letter for the day. And I would say, okay, this, uh, that, okay, you are an A, and you have a name, but you also know how to say three things. There's three things that you know how to say, a, a, a. And so um, I'm going to ask you throughout the day, what is your name? And you're going to say, my name is A. And I'm going to say, what do you know how to say? And you're going to say, ah, And so I would do this throughout the day, and I'd catch them at different times. And they were little, maybe four or five. And I would say, what's your name? And usually they would give me their actual name. <laughs> and I would point at the letter on their chest, and I'd say, well, today you're a special letter. What's your name? And they would say, A. And I would say, what do you know how to say? And they would say, ah. And it was just fun to be able to see them enjoying the process um, and I guess another thing I'd like to jump in on here, there's so many different rabbit trails we could go down on this whole thing. Um, but what about the aspect of reading? How important is reading in the process of your children wanting to learn how to read and wanting to develop those skills? Oh, I think it's huge. And, you know, while we're talking about this, um, I believe it was this summer I was at a conference, a homeschool conference, and I actually got to go sit in on some of the sessions. And Andrew Pudawa was talking about dyslexia. And uh, there's three different dyslexias that he talked about. There's classic of actually switching the letters, 
you know, actually seeing those letters kind of backwards and so forth. And then there's behavioral dyslexic where um, I believe it is that the brain has a hard time focusing and just being able to really center and visualize those words in their actual order. And there's a third one I'm not remembering. Anyhow, um, he mentioned a lot of times by the time, and particularly this would be with the case with boys, a lot of times they get to about age 12 or 13 and it's like somehow they just develop uh, physically probably too, but they just develop enough of uh, ability to focus that they can actually learn to read better. And I've seen that happen. And I think for moms and dads, sometimes we can get so scared, like, okay, I'm doing so much. I'm doing everything I can to help my children read, and it's not clicking. Sometimes it just needs some time, and that's really hard to do. But if you are consistently providing instruction in how to read, and you're consistently coming up with ways to help your particular child catch on, you're doing your very best. And sometimes just giving it that space so a child has the fortitude within themselves to focus can make all the difference. Okay, we're going to wrap up this podcast, but we are going to continue this in a part two. So if you want to hear a continued dialogue on this particular topic, we invite you to join us for the second edition. You'll just have to uh, look for our next podcast uh, when it's available. We're grateful for you joining us and listening to this podcast on reading. And uh, we hope that you'll visit our website and check out our books. I have a brand new book that is coming out spring 2017. Um, feel free to check our website and see if that's out yet. Uh, but it is um, familyrenewal.org. And then you can also uh, look for our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash familyrenewal. And we would like for you to sign up on our email list. And the email list is at um, www.familyrenewal.org forward slash subscribe forward slash subscribe, and that will enable you to get email updates of where we're going to be and when we're going to be speaking in your area. And so uh, we hope you'll join us again for another episode of the Family Renewal Podcast. And thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.